Welcome everyone. <coughs> Excuse me. So in case you're surprised by the crowd, we normally don't get this many people for our Sunday 11 a.m. sit. Um, but this is our quarterly gathering, community gathering. And it's an opportunity for us to remember why we have a practice, why we do show up here or at home, and it's uh, even though it's a formal refuge, something that people interested in the path that was laid out by the Buddha have recited these refuges and these precepts for so long. Um, it's really our job, being here, not to let it be an empty gesture. Like how to make this quarterly gathering practical and useful in our lives. I remember reading once Yanaponika um, Tara, this Western monk. He asked three questions, and, it, and this really, I think, helps us in terms of using the refuges, making it a useful activity. He asked the question, uh, is the world a safe place? Or is there some danger as a human being? Are we in danger of falling into suffering? And I'm, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm still in danger of suffering and that I'm interested in a refuge because of that, or at least keeping that question alive. How do I avoid danger? How do I find something of real safety in my life? So first, the question is, you know, is this the kind of world that suggests the need for a refuge. And then the next question, of course, is, is, well, is there a refuge? And then the third question is, well, if there's a refuge for a human being, what is the nature of this refuge? Where do we find it? Or how do we find it? And that's really the purpose of this quarterly gathering. And the purpose of this talk is just to share a few thoughts <clears throat> about what is dependable, or as uh, Sharon Salzberg talks in her book on faith and in her talks on faith, sadda, the word sadda, the Pali word sadda, she talks about it in terms of what's dependable. Where can we place the heart that's dependable, the mind that's dependable, that leads to happiness that's not vulnerable to changing conditions. So what we find, I'm sure people know this in this room, is that our suffering, our difficulty in life, our stress in life, and also our happiness in life, our ease in life, has a lot to do with the quality of intention in any given time. So if you're sitting here burning with aversion or craving the potluck, and your whole intention of being here is to get some food. Well, that's, that intention is suffering, I think. Although we can distract ourselves from the suffering by imagining how delicious the food will be. But in a way, that's a, just because we don't recognize how, how much of a burden it is to be wanting the potluck doesn't mean it isn't a burden. So we can distract ourselves by thinking about something like when I get even with this person or when I get my food. So in, in the Buddhist model of the world, in the way the Buddha suggested we relate to our lives, just taking refuge is not, it's anything but a passive, like, we align ourselves with the Buddha, and then therefore we're saved. You know, if I just keep aligning myself with the Buddha, or the Buddhist tradition, or Common Ground Meditation Center, then somehow, through some magical or mystical force, I'll be saved from suffering. I'll avoid what's difficult in life. So that's not how this path works. 
it's really uh, a sort of a turning in terms of responsibility it's a turning back on ourselves and trying to understand well, what that means like what does that mean to turn back on ourselves to turn back toward our life but that's actually what we take refuge in and in a way it's the opposite of our culture you know which is a a movement toward things where the Buddhist the Buddhist path is a movement towards understanding so here things could include good friends a good a retirement account uh, a beautiful body you know nice personality these are relatively nice things to have I think but ultimately they're you know they're impermanent we can't really base an existence on those things because they change so in terms of a refuge instead of the refuge being things our refuge is a deepening of understanding that's what we take refuge in so instead of distraction it's non-distraction instead of some other time we're taking refuge in the here and the now that if there is a refuge if there is something truly dependable a way of being that's truly dependable then it would have to be dependable here and now not later when I'm a perfect meditator or when I do all the right things but right now I remember yesterday when probably remembers this I was Wynn and I were sort of rushing to get out to see my parents and uh, we were trying to make reservations to go visit them later this year I was on the website for Northwest Airlines and it, I got into one of these Twilight Zone loops where it uh, was demanding that I give them Wynn's frequent flyer number and uh, but they wouldn't let me input anything it just showed mine and I kept trying to put it in it kept showing mine and then even if I continued it always send me back there saying you have the wrong frequent flyer you know it doesn't match the person and I just couldn't believe it and I noticed my mind really really wanting somebody to blame but I had enough wherewithal you know to, to sort of get that there's nobody to blame and that that, that actually felt worse <laughs> than the anger it's like not having anywhere to direct it uh, it's just sort of uh, it was a little bit funny and that's our but that's you I think our that's the stream we're caught in that when we have strong experiences of pleasure or of unpleasure uh, pain we you know we want to uh, use it as a takeoff point for the ego for the self-centered thinking spinning the drama a life of distraction and where we're pursuing things instead of deepening understanding so in a way I think the more we understand taking refuge the more we understand it as a real breath of sanity because all of these habits we have of pursuing things pursuing what's pleasant pursuing getting away from what's unpleasant it's exhausting it's really exhausting one of the great benefits of going on a meditation retreat a mindfulness meditation retreat is we really get how exhausting our thinking is even our relatively wholesome thinking let alone our unwholesome thinking I mean I can think of many times in retreat thinking about being a better partner to my wife and that's relatively wholesome thinking <laughs> could use some improvement but it's exhausting to be sitting and aware of basically a rejecting of the present moment like it's not okay being a mediocre partner I have to be a better partner or it's not okay being a mediocre meditator or being what it is right now it's always about something else and we can really get that that's exhausting the more we get that the normal way of spinning is exhausting the more we understand what taking refuge is so traditionally you know we have the three refuges in the traditional Buddhist formulation and it's just a 
traditional ritual. That's what it is. It's up to us to make it meaningful. But traditionally, it's we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And uh, the basic way I like to understand it, the way I use it, is when I take refuge in the Buddha, it's true, I am inspired by this historical person, this historic person, and uh, even the image is meaningful to me, you know, the statues. But the image and the ideas I have about the historic person, for me, represent this possibility of being fully present and at ease. So the, with the first refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, it's relatively easy to personalize it. And of course, it's dangerous to personalize anything. But it's also a bridge for us. Like, well, if this guy can do it, then maybe I can do it. Or if I can even imagine a human being being in the middle of his life, in this case, assuming he was a guy, in the middle of his life, open, present, without the weight of self-centered fear, self-centered aversion, self-centered greed, well, then maybe it's possible in this life. So that's how I use it. The second refuge isn't so easy to personalize, and I think on purpose. Taking refuge in Dhamma is specifically meant to be impersonal. And so that's what I'd like to talk for about 10 minutes tonight, today, on before we actually do the refuges and precepts, take the refuges and precepts. There's a very poignant, beautiful passage in the discourses the days before the Buddha died. Um, and the Buddha had eaten some bad, um, what do you call it when you make a meat dish that's uh, like a pate, I forget what it's called. But anyway, it was bad. And the Buddha had some and told the rest of the monks, nuns, and other people who were around not to eat any of it. Uh, for whatever reason, he ate it and got really sick. And after that, Ananda, when the Buddha started getting a little bit better, and here the Buddha was already in his 80s or 80 years old, and Ananda explained to the Buddha how he felt like he was totally overwhelmed when he saw that the Buddha was so sick, being an old man and so sick. He likened himself to being like a drunkard, confused, not knowing what to do. And, you know, here's Ananda. It's kind of nice to see this because Ananda, who had been practicing for how many, I don't know how many decades at that point, but at least 20 years or so, and uh, had deep insight, still not knowing how to relate to the fact of his teacher being old and really sick. And he was really relieved. And the Buddha, in a sense, scolded him when, the, when Ananda shared that to him, shared that with him. Because Ananda said, one of the, the only comforting thought was he knew that Buddha wouldn't die before setting things straight, like deciding who was going to take over after he died. And he knew that because the Buddha hadn't done that, that he must not be about to die. And the Buddha scolded him. He said, first of all, I've done everything I can do. I've taught everything I can teach. I don't have any sort of hidden, hidden teachings that still need to come out. Everything that you guys need to practice, it's out there. And, uh, and he also said, and I don't consider the group of practitioners my group of practitioners, in the sense that it has its own sort of momentum now. It will take care of itself. Leaders will arise when they're ready to be leaders, and I don't need to assign that sort of a radical thing for the head of an organization to do, even sort of a maybe dispersed organization. And then the Buddha gave this really important teaching. He started by saying, Ananda, I am, I am now old and worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's path. I have reached the term of life, which is 80. Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps, so this body is kept going by being strapped up. And he goes on to say how the only comfort, freedom from pain he gets is when he concentrates his mind. Otherwise, he is aware, maybe not suffering, but he's aware of pain. 
the pain of being an old person. And so he gives Ananda this teaching. Therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves. Sometimes that word island is translated as lamp. And I guess for some reason it's not clear what it is. But I think the meaning is clear here, that we should take our life as it actually is, as our refuge. Not something outside of this moment, this experience here and now. With no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how does a practitioner live as an island unto herself, with no other refuge? Here, Ananda, a practitioner, abides contemplating the body as body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, and having put away all hankering and fretting for the world. And likewise, with regard to feelings, mind and mind objects. That, Ananda, is how a practitioner lives as an island unto herself, with no other refuge. And those who now in my time or afterwards live thus, they will become the highest if they are desirous of learning, open to learning. So if the Buddha is, as it's often said in Thai, the Thai force tradition, if the Buddha is the one who knows, then the question is, with this capacity to be open and awake, what is it that we know? What is the one who knows no, what does the Buddha know? The Buddha in our heart or the Buddha... There's a chair up here too, Scott, if you want. What does it know? So what we know in moments of uh, strong mindfulness, clear mindfulness, is we know the Dhamma, the way it is. And it's really hard to talk about it the image that came to mind this morning when I was thinking about this talk, maybe some of you saw the movie, I think it's called The First Contact First Contact with Jodie Foster. Anybody see that movie? There's one scene I really like in that movie. If you don't know it, it's I think Carl Sagan wrote the original version of it. And uh, it was just his imagining of what the first contact of human beings with some other advanced life form from another place. And so Jodie Foster is a scientist. Uh, using, uh, I guess, satellite or, uh, I'm not sure if it's radar or what, to radio telescopes to listen into outer space. And eventually the humans get a message. And part of the message is how to build some sort of machine or ship to transport a human to this other group of beings, wherever they might be. And it's very complicated. It takes several years and there's all kinds of sort of interesting twists and turns in the movie. But eventually Jodie Foster is the person who's selected and she's in this little thing that sort of spins around and of course all the people have this idea of what's going to happen. Like somehow they don't understand the machine. They were given very specific instructions but they don't understand how it works. And they turn on the on switch or something like that and it begins to do something and then whatever Jodie Foster is in, it just falls and there's like a pool of water underneath it and they go, oh, Whoops, we must have made a mistake because nothing happened. And we, as uh, the movie audience, we get to see from the inside of the little capsule that she's in that it's like <clears throat> the ground falls out from underneath her. You know, she's sitting there in a regular, you know, what we would imagine a little space capsule would look like, you know, with a nice chair and a lot of devices. And she just, all that sort of disappears. And she goes into, I guess, some kind of a wormhole. And this is a little bit like what practice is like. Uh, practice is like, where we're in our very clear, clearly understood capsule called our conceptual universe. And so, when someone says something like taking refuge in Dhamma, taking refuge in the way it is, it's just, of course, we're going to just assume, well, this is the way that it is. So, taking refuge in Dhamma is, is like an act of trust and patience. Like, of course this is how it is, but we don't stop there. There's something really active. It's not a passive. Taking, taking refuge in Dhamma isn't passive. It's an active, an active curiosity or innocence. We have to keep 
sort of peeling back our expectations of how it is. How it is to be in a body, how it is to breathe, how it is to hear, what that is, that experience of being alive. And one of the first shifts that begins as we have a sense, a, a direct sense of Dhamma, the way it is, is a, it's a kind of coolness. It's like the fires or the warmth of our, the familiar uh, chewing of our mind, spinning of our mind that begins to go away. And there's a, it's like a cool breeze. Like if you've been on top of a mountain or in the wilderness, you can have that feeling a little bit like uh, my thinking mind, the familiarity of my thinking mind. It's not getting a lot of support out here in the wilderness. Do you know that feeling, those of you who have been backpacking or out in the wild? And we can have that in the middle of a city, you know, like at this corner of Minneapolis, in this room, we can have it by the simple process of not feeding our, self, our, our self-centered thinking. And that same kind of coolness, or um, it's like we enter a place beyond good and bad, beyond the judgments of the thinking mind. I want this, I don't want that. So now when we feel the breeze or hear the sound of the wind outside, it's almost impossible not to have that experience colored by our interpretation. Oh, what a nice fall day. Or, oh, so cool. What happened to summer? So sometimes people use the phrase, you know, suchness or as it isness. The isness about the present moment. When and I were on retreat a couple years ago with Saida Upandita, and there were some other monks teaching with Saida Upandita, this well-known teacher from Burma. One is this very nice German monk who's been a monk for a number of years, maybe over, maybe close to 25 now. So he's, he's quite a good teacher on his own right. And he would lead the chanting every morning for us. He has a beautiful voice. And there's this traditional chant so the, traditionally in the monasteries, you wouldn't just say, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, but you'd kind of describe a little bit what that means. It's sort of a traditional formulation, like what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the one who knows, and the Dhamma. And this is what they say about taking refuge in the Dhamma. The Pali, and this is in perfect pronunciation, but it kind of goes like this, at least the way that we chanted it. Um, let's see. Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachatang Veditapo Winyuhi. And I remember hearing this, so he sang it very beautifully. And I remember hearing it every morning for, I guess that was six week, a six week retreat. And, uh, and it was a long, I mean, we chanted for 15 minutes. And so this was just 15 or 20 seconds. But this was my favorite part. And I don't think it was my favorite part because of the particular sound of it. But I probably, it turned out to be my favorite part because of where his mind was when he sang it, when he chanted it. And now hearing the translation of what that is, I really understand. It's so, it's so beautifully deep and available. So I just want to translate this. this. Most of this translation is from how Ajahn Sumedho, another Western monk, translates it. So the words sanitiko, so this again is in reference, in reference to taking refuge in the Dhamma. It means imminent or here and now. So there's something about this refuge that's about here and now. Nothing needs to be added or taken away. So it's nice to remember, it's just here and now. It's such a relief that we don't have to add anything in order to take refuge. Akaliko means not bound by time. So what's, what is it that's not bound by time? 
And, you know, all of us, I think, it's fair to say, have had moments where it appears that time is suspended. So the interesting thing is those moments feel unusual, like almost a mistake. And then we get back to sort of regular reality. But maybe that is regular reality. And we live inside of this thinking mind that imposes a sense of past and future. And then we live with the weight of time. But is there actually time? What does that mean that there's time? Time would mean that there's a past and there's a future. But do we have evidence for either of those things, except thoughts here and now? So that's the other quality of Dhamma. It's this timelessness that I think we probably know, even if we don't remember, I think we've stumbled upon moments of timelessness. When the moment was so full of just being that the mind, the thinking mind, didn't impose some thought of, oh, oh, in the future, or this is so nice I've had this experience because now in the future my life will be different. There's not that additional part. And then the next phrase, ehi pasiko, is a famous line. Some of you might even recognize my bad pronunciation, which often is translated as come and see. Some of you have seen the new building that we have the purchase agreement on that we're hoping will end up being our long-term home just down the street here. And there's a hamburger man, <laughs> big, almost life-size. It must be at least five or six feet tall and big round hamburger belly. And we've been joking about what to do. I mean, I, I'm assuming we're going to get rid of it. But we, we've been joking about, well, we could just keep it and make it a Buddha. And I said, yeah. And the words, we, we replaced chicken, ribs, and steaks with come and see. Because it was something the Buddha said often to people, come and see. And it means a couple of things. One is it's like everybody is invited. And this, these teachings are available to everybody whether you're in the sort of in India at the time, the lowest caste or the highest caste. Kings, queens were students of the Buddha and the untouchables. I, I don't know if they called them that then, but even the low caste people were uh, students of the Buddha. And it didn't matter because the teachings were appropriate for any human being, regardless of the particular conditions of their life. But the other thing that come and see means is that there has to be, it's, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that it's not passive, that we actually have to do something. We have to turn toward, and that's one of the ways to think about this is, it's a turning toward or turning away from our distractions, from how, how comfortable our thinking patterns are. They're comfortable because they're well known, they're familiar. Even if they even if it's a lot of pain that we're sort of regurgitating, it's pleasant because it's known. We, it's known territory for us. So we just keep spinning in the very same ways. There's that nice... Uh, I, I remembered I, I was in a, the choir in the 60s and early 70s at the Catholic Church where my family attended. and. Uh, it was our, our church, our particular church, was very hip, you know, and so we had sort of folk singing, people leading it, and he used to be my fifth grade teacher, the guy who led it, so I, and I was just in awe of him, he was just a great guy, and, uh, and so I joined the choir, and, uh, and we, we used to sing the song a lot, which was, uh, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open, ask and it shall be given, and I don't know how it goes, and that love will come a trickling down or something. Anybody know the next line? <laughs> when the love comes trickling down. And the when, when oh, the love. when the love comes trickling down. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> I, I googled it, and it only had the passage from the Bible, which doesn't have that last line. But it was beautiful, and it and I, I like it because it's the same idea that we have to take the first step. There's nothing passive in spiritual life. We have to actually show up, like here today, or show up on our chair or meditation cushion at home as often as we can. 
If we don't look for it, we won't find it. And, you know, I think a a lot of the reasons we don't want to take that step is that we've been burned in the past. You know, we've looked and we haven't found. We've knocked and no one answered. And, uh, but it's actually kind of nice, even though you could look at that as a failure, it's nice because then we know don't knock there anymore. So even if we knock, you know, we go out drinking, looking for happiness, and then the next morning we realize, well, that wasn't any good. <laughs> you know, I'm $50 short and uh, I got a headache and uh, I said some really embarrassing things. <laughs> oh, whatever, not that it's always that way. But we can learn from our mistakes. The point is to keep knocking. And maybe in knocking through our mistakes and our successes, we begin to have a sense of what is a true refuge and what isn't a true refuge. So this is the Ehi Pasiko, come and see, an invitation for effort, for engaging our life and learning something from it. And then Opanayiko is this, uh, it means to turn inward. So away from fascination, enchantment with the things of the world. So we're looking for a refuge in the things of the world to finding our refuge in the heart, in the very center of this moment. So that's what we mean by the heart, in the very center of this moment. So it undermines any sort of tendency for finding our happiness anywhere else but in the center of things right now, in the stillness. So not even in the activity of the heart, but in the space of the heart, the space of the mind not the activity. So not what we generate with thought or imaginings or emotion. So not even ecstatic emotion, which is can be quite beautiful, of course. That that's not what he means by this inward turning. That the stillness or the silence itself is the great refuge. And this, this whole inward turning is an acquired taste. And you know what helps is seeing how all of the other stuff ultimately isn't satisfying. So it's not that we have to do that, but we naturally just start appreciating that stillness and silence of the heart. And then the last phrase is, Pachatang Wehitabo Winyuhi, which means that the understanding or insight into Dhamma only happens through direct experience. Nobody can do it for us. No one can give it to us. It only happens through direct experience. One of the well-known teachers in the 1900s, one of the main early teachers of Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and many of the other Western, early Western teachers, was an Indian man named Manindaji. And he used to say all the time, evidently, The Buddha has done his work, now it's your turn. And uh, so it doesn't matter that the Buddha had this direct experience or all the men and women through the the ages have had this direct experience. The question is, are we using our life in a way that supports having this direct experience or not? So when we do this chant, as Ajahn Tomato said in this article where he translated this uh, phrase, this old phrase, I'm not even sure if it's from the original suttas or if it's just something that's come up over time, but he talked about how the three refuges are a maturing refuge from sort of any all idealistic notions, spiritual notions, to something deeply grounded in our present moment experience, in the here and now. You know, in a way, the here and now is the, in a way, the complete opposite of any idealism, any hopeful thinking. So it's, but it's really trustworthy 
because all of that idealism requires us to project ideas, project hope, and that's exhausting. And so to find, even in little glimpses, to find what's trustworthy here and now is a it, uh, it undermines so much suffering and fear and craving. So as we do the refuges now, it's nice to keep this in mind. So even though we'll be doing this formal refuge, and you might love this formal refuge of taking refuge in the three, uh, the three refuges and doing the five lay precepts, Keep in mind the truth of the present moment as we chant these together. That being here in community, chanting these words out loud, that this can be enough. It doesn't have to mean like, oh, this is going to set my life in a good direction. Because it might set your life in a good direction. But we don't want to postpone that. How about right now? Maybe just being here with this mind and body can be enough. So we, um, because they, these have traditionally been chanted in the Pali, which is a language that the original talks of the Buddha were recorded in. So we'll, we'll do that too, and then we'll read the English translation a little bit later for the refuges. We need five people to read the five precepts, the Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary in the five precepts. So anybody want to be one of the readers? Sue, you do the first one. Anybody else? Marianne, the second. Teresa, the third. Anybody want to read the fourth one? Elizabeth. And then one more, the fifth one, which is on page three. Thanks, Carol. And then, um, let's see. So there's some times where it says uh, simple bow uh, in boot in Pali, this is called Anjali. So it just means bringing the hands together and maybe bringing the forehead down toward the tops of the fingers a little bit like this. But you can do it any way that you like. But it's, a, it's really an act of gratitude and respect. And again, if you can, don't externalize it. Don't think of like it's out there. Whatever is holy, it's out there. Just keep the possibility that it's right here and now what's holy or what's uh, skillful or what's valuable. Okay, so we'll begin with three bells and then we'll do a simple bow and begin the chanting. Tatiampi, Damang, Serenang, 
I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting the inherent peace and freedom of non-clinging. And the second, I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting mindfulness, opening to things as they are. And the third, I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So the whole group will read the Pali and then the English right underneath it. And then one of the five volunteers will read Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary. Thich Nhat Hanh is a well-known Vietnamese Zen monk. And uh, these are just his reflections on each of the five precepts. So we begin with the first. Panatipata samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice it. Now the second. Adina dana veramani sikapadam samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to deal and not to possess anything which should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. Now the third. Kamesu Mitchistara Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Now the fourth. Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. 
aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain, and will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. And now the fifth. Shura Maria Majapamaratana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. We just continue with the last two sections. Idam me silam magafalanyana sa achayo hosu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. And then we continue reading. Taking the three refuges, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings, and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all the blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. announcements, I hope. Um, Marianne, do you want to just say something about Marcia's retreat? Yeah, I just um, wanted to know that Swami's quote uh, in the entryway from Marcia Rose retreat and the dates are November 3rd through the 10th. 10, or just the weekend. Or just the weekend and uh, there are plenty of openings. Marcia Rose is uh, a teacher and I encourage those who might be interested to take a flyer Great. So the flyers are both upstairs and downstairs. And Marianne and also Gail is kind of one of the coordinating people. Anybody else who's involved with TCBC here today? So you can see either one of those two if you have questions about these retreats. But a number of us have been on TCBC retreats, so you could 
talk to any number of us. And Judith Regeer will be speaking. Our monthly Dharma program, evening Dharma program, will be the 30th, Saturday the 30th. Judith is a Zen teacher in town, has taught a number of the centers, has given talks here in, in the past. And she's speaking on the mysterious pivot using our aversion to enter non-duality. So that's Saturday the 30th at 7 o'clock uh, to 9, and that's a drop-in program. So please join us if you're free that evening. Um, we're going to have a community celebration coming up. If you'd like to uh, get involved with setup or takedown or cooking, Elizabeth is sort of managing the reception for that yearly event on the 21st, 21st Saturday the 21st. We'll have some performances by our our very own singing group, the Darmets. <laughs> Waking up is hard to do, and another another song that I think Matt is working on, and then another group. They call themselves the Dharma Divas. Will be singing something to the tune of uh, "Yes, We Have No Bananas." <laughs> and I know Gail will be in that group, and uh, Marianne is in that group too, and Diane and Robin, who I don't see here today, right now at least. Um, so that's the 21st of October. That also has dropped in. So we'll be sending out more information about that. And uh, there's a retreat this coming Saturday, the 23rd. You can sign up in the entrance way, and then the the next week, the 30th, during the day, I'll be leading a, a retreat down at Dia Kinnan's house. Some of you know Dia, a longtime community member. She now lives in Zumbro Falls. And there's a little description of that retreat on the bulletin board if anybody wants to drive down for that retreat. It's a beautiful country setting they have. Any other announcements for the group? Coco. Good morning. I was knowing being part of this Sangha and I feel, we feel, I think, so blessed to have this Sangha and also we are very blessed to have um, many program leaders that support um, programs here. And uh, once a quarter uh, we offer Dana to these program leaders. So with respect and gratitude, we offer Dana to Gail. Thank you. Veronica is not here. Yeah, she's up north. Um, Mera is not here either. Wendy is not here either. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Noor is not here either. Patrice. Thank you very much. And Rodney. We <laughs> <laughs> can get it to him later if you want. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much.